Hello and welcome to the Sound on Sound podcast, which complements the May issue of the magazine. I'm Editor-in-Chief Paul White, and with me as ever is Technical Editor Hugh Robjohns. Hello there. Since the last podcast, we've checked out the treats at the Frankfurt Music Messe, and also I've paid a visit to the HK factory in Germany to see some of their PA systems being built, and to listen to them perform under battle conditions alongside their main competitors. Though most of the new products for the year were announced at the January NAM show, Roland still managed to turn up with a few things at Messer, including a new Jupiter 50, which is a slightly scaled-down version of their recent Jupiter 80. They've also added the TD-11 series of electronic drum kits to their V-drum line, and this includes their supernatural technology, which they say gives greater responsiveness and better sound quality. Meanwhile, Universal Audio announced a suite of plugins for their UAD2 platform based on three different generations of the famous 1176 compressor, which they say takes realism to a new level. The iPad edition of Sound on Sound is also attracting a lot of interest, and there's a free issue available via iTunes so you can give it a try before committing to a subscription. So, before we get stuck into the techie part, what have you been doing over the last couple of weeks, Hugh? Anything interesting? I've been playing with a lot of microphones recently, actually. I don't know why. It's just uh, we had a batch of microphones come through. There was the Peluso P67, which is a kind of homage, if you like, to the famous Neumann U67. I always think the U67 is one of those microphones that often gets overlooked because it came after the U47, which everybody knows about, the famous Tele 47, uh, and it came before the U87, which, of course, is everybody's kind of dream standard studio microphone. And the U67 was a valve microphone that sat nicely between the two, and it it brought a lot of new features and facilities which we now take for granted, but it was a very important microphone at the time, and the Peluso P67 is is quite a a nice take on that. So that was one I've done. Um, Lindos, who are better known for making test equipment, uh, they've made some new microphones, uh, quite interesting design which I've been looking at. Black Spade UM71, that's a nice mic. Uh, and then some other hardware things. I've been doing the, the Real Sound Labs Connec or Con EQ, which is a, a speaker equalization system. Uh, the Lavery AD11, which I think I might have mentioned before, but I've completed that one. But the one that everybody's really going to be interested in is the UAD Apollo interface, which is currently sat on my desk waiting for me to complete some um, bench tests on it. And that looks to like be a really, really good interface. And I know you're, you're hankering to have one of those yourself, aren't you? I'm, I'm, I'm desperate to try it, and I'm possibly going to end up buying one. Mm, yes, well, she'll finish my review, and then you'll know, won't you? I will. I always trust your reviews. <laughs> so what have you been playing with? Well, as well as visiting the uh, Messer show and the HK factory, I've been working on a feature on how to choose a PA system appropriate to your needs and your budget. And I've also tested Roland's Armix software. This is a, a consumer product, I think. It's, uh, it uses spectral editing to help you extract individual elements from a mix. Uh, for example, you can take out the vocals or an instrumental sound, although the end result, of course, depends on how complex the mix is and on how the sounds are panned. But in most cases, you can reduce the vocal level to almost zero without messing up the rest of the sound too badly. And while this might seem like a recipe for making karaoke backing tracks, which of course you can do, I found it very useful for just adjusting the level of a vocal in a previous mix. So if you've got those old cassette tapes lying around and you haven't got the multi-tracks anymore, you can extract the vocals, turn them up a couple of dBs, turn them down a couple of dBs, even add reverb, compression or delay to them because those things are all built into the software and then you can put them back. There's also Phrase technology built in so that you can slow down the extracted part to help you learn it. So it's good for guitar players too. You can extract the guitar solo, slow it down to half speed and try and figure out what it does. And I've been looking at the Lewitt LCT640 microphone, which is uh, quite a high-tech thing with push-button selection, somewhat reminiscent of AKG's latest 414 design. 
but it's a very good microphone in its own right. It seems very nicely made, sensibly priced, and it worked pretty well on just about everything I pointed it at. Features. In the May issue of Sound on Sound, you'll find the usual wealth of interviews, door workshops, reviews and features, including an inside track feature on the making of Van Halen's first album. There's another deep and gritty mix rescue, while Studio SOS this month visits a tiny London studio built beneath a busy road flyover. Studio File looks at the record plant, one of LA's most famous studios, while our busy review section covers Moog's mini Taurus bass synth, SE's revamped multi-pattern 2200A microphone, Lexicon's MXP native reverb plugin, and the Electro Harmonics Analogizer guitar processor. That's a brilliant word, Analogizer. Like it. That's with a Z for our American viewers. Then there's the IGS TubeCore ME valve compressor, KRK's Rocket RP103 three-way active monitors, Siren Audio's Lorelei suite of effects and processors, and the latest incarnation of Garriton's Instant Orchestra. In fact, there are just too many hardware, software, PA and sample library reviews to list, so I won't even try. You'll have to buy the magazine to find out. Really hot news is that Hugh and I will be appearing at the A to D show in Exeter on Saturday the 21st. We will at the Phoenix Centre. I think the doors open at 10.30 and we're actually doing two sessions. We're doing a panel discussion, which is in the late morning, and um, Paul's also doing a thing about recording techniques and so on uh, in the early afternoon. So come along and say hello. And of course, we'll be wandering around between those sessions. You can always pigeonhole us and in exchange for coffee and hobnobs, we'll tell you anything. Yeah, anything you like. Why the sky's blue, why cats purr, all that stuff. Yeah, it's good. On the products front, well, we've actually succumbed to requests from you, the readers, and produced our own pseudo-balanced audio cable for helping to avoid ground loop hum. Um, This is one for Hugh to tell us about, I think, as he was instrumental in uh, designing this. Yeah, this is a cable that uh, I think we must have described how to make in the magazine and on the forums probably several million times by now. And it's just, it's a very simple way of trying to get rid of those nasty ground loops that you always get when you're trying to connect unbalanced outputs from things like synthesizers and some effects processors into your mixing console or your door interface or whatever. And it's, it's just a very simple way of doing it that doesn't involve transformers, but it requires a little bit of dexterity to make that kind of cable. And of course, a lot of our readers aren't really very comfortable using a soldering iron. So we've gone to the trouble of commissioning Piranha to make these cables specially for us to our own design. And they're now available in the shop at a bargain price and a real bargain price if you're already a subscriber. So if you buy one of these, you'll be a well-balanced reader. Absolutely. Also most welcome in these times of recession is news of a free version of the PreSonus Studio One door software. You simply download the full Studio One installer from the Studio One website, install it, and then choose to run it as the free version. This version includes many of the Studio One version 2 features, notably multi-track editing, single and multi-track comping, but of course it does have some limitations, otherwise there'd be no point in it being free. So there's no folder tracks, no transient detection and editing, no groove extraction, and no pre-Sonus exchange integration. However, it's still a very flexible door. And once you do decide it's for you, it's easy to upgrade to the full version, without even having to reinstall it because once you've authorised it all the extra features just spring to life so go to studio1.presonus.com slash free for more info sounds like the best bargain you're going to get this week of course no new section goes by without a mention of something designed to plug into an iPhone or an iPad and this month it's the Tascam iU2 audio interface which is compatible with the iPad the iPhone 4 and the iPod Touch 
The IU2 features two microphone inputs with phantom power, though it also accepts instrument and line levels. It has low latency direct monitoring, and you get MIDI in and out as well as both analog and SPDIF digital outputs. Power comes from the connected iOS device, and the recommended price is £149 in the UK. Tone 2 Audio Software released their Saurus Analog Model Synthesizer plugin, and that supports all the common Mac and PC plugin formats. Apparently, the circuits of several classic synths were analysed to capture the vibe of the original hardware, and in addition to the oscillator and filter sections, there's a sophisticated arpeggiator and some very flexible modulation options. At €99, Euros, that sounds like a pretty good deal too. This is a question that I know Hugh is raring to answer, and that is, is there really much audible difference between a typical audio interface and a really high-quality converter? Not a lot, no. But what difference there is, is often important, at least to those people who appreciate such things. We're into the world of diminishing returns, aren't we, really? And modern technology these days is of such a high standard that the differences between a budget interface and a real state-of-the-art top-quality interface is pretty small, to be honest. If you put it on a measuring system and measure it, you know, dynamic range might be 4 or 5 dBs greater, signal-to-noise ratio slightly better, possibly. Bandwidth is going to be pretty much the same. Distortion is going to be pretty much the same. The differences are very subtle in terms of pure sound quality. Okay, so um, why would you spend more money on a better one? Well, it comes down to things like the build quality, the reliability, the ability to upgrade. Uh, if they have things like microphone preamps built in, often you have better facilities or a better sound. Features like transformer inputs to give you a bit of that iron sound, which you probably wouldn't get on a budget interface. Things like the power supply design, the analog circuitry, those things, if you spend more money on them, they all start to get that little bit better and those incremental changes start to build up to a, a much more appreciable change in audio quality. But we are, as I say, we're talking about diminishing returns and these things can be quite subtle. Okay, so that seems very fair. So if you've got golden ears, a golden wallet is the thing to have. Otherwise, you can probably make do using something well chosen uh, at a more modest price. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it comes down to the rest of your signal chain. I mean, if you're using budget monitors, then a really high quality interface may not bring you benefits that you can hear because of the limitations of your monitors or the rest of your signal chain so you know you need to balance the level of technology across your entire recording chain I think so it's all down to finding the weakest link in your chain and addressing that rather than just trying to put in one expensive piece of kit yeah I think so and we've said it before you know you can make a vast difference to the quality of recording by moving a microphone a few inches or changing the microphone changes in things like converters become less significant you've got to get it right at the front end a good engineer can get a great sound using you know an M audio interface or something a bad engineer can't get a great sound using a prismorphous. So, you know, you've got, you've got to look at these things in a very logical and structured way. Fair enough. And the next question, I, I guess this, um, this is going to run and run, but uh, someone's asking, does vinyl really sound better than CD? Because when I compare some of my vinyl records with their CD counterparts, the vinyl seems more musical, less harsh to my ears. Now, Hugh, I, I suspect that isn't all to do with just the difference in the medium. No, I don't think it is. I think it's a lot to do with the way the tracks are mastered. I was doing a project recently where I was trying to go back and make a compilation using some material from the, the 80s, really, just before the age of the CD. And a lot of that material has now been re-released and is available on CD, often in remastered collections and, and remastered albums. And comparing those tracks, the CD remastered CD tracks, with the original vinyl, I was quite shocked in many cases because all the life has been squashed out of it. It's very, very loud. If you look at the waveforms, whereas some tracks kind of build 
progressively and musically throughout the entire track. Uh, in the remastered versions, it kind of starts quiet, gets loud very quickly, and then stays there. It's almost like a straight line on the waveform display. And it is all to do with the way that tracks have been remastered, and there's this constant pressure, constant drive on mastering engineers to always make it louder and to try and squeeze a bit more level out of the thing. And I think we are beginning to lose some of the um, musical aspects of some of these recordings. I certainly noticed that with a lot of the uh, early re-releases on CD, especially when uh, producers realised that they could make things far brighter than they could on vinyl, which I found quite fatiguing. But... Do you think they're starting to treat the process more sympathetically now or do you think it's still as bad as ever? No, I think it's still as bad as ever. It's a bit of a turnaround really because a CD actually has more capability for dynamic range than the vinyl medium ever had, but people are are using it the wrong way around and and so actually current vinyl releases are possibly more musical than some CD releases, which is bizarre. So don't blame the medium, blame what's being done with it. I think so. We can't blame mastering engineers particularly because they work to their clients and if that's what their clients want, they're kind of obliged to do it, really. It's, it's a sad situation, but that's where we are. So it comes back to this um, everything's got to be louder than everything else kind of regime we have. It is. The interesting thing, and, and I have high hopes for this, is the introduction of this loudness metering standard, which we've talked about before, the ITURBS 1770 and its various implementations into other standards. The EBU have a recommendation called R128. Go online, read about them. It's a fantastic scheme. You'll start to find indoors uh, and the separate plugins now, lots of meter options that talk about loudness metering. Start using them. Get used to the idea of using them. The big thing about this is that instead of trying to set everything according to its peak level, which is what we do at the moment, you balance tracks by their relative loudness. And these meters are very precise and accurate at judging the loudness of a track. And what that allows you to do is not only make all the tracks sound equally loud very easily, but it actually encourages you to have dynamic range. Whereas when you try and peak everything to a peak level, you squash out that dynamic range. So there's a lot of hope here, I think, if people start moving towards using loudness metering, where we will actually encourage some dynamic contrast back into the music and get back to where it really ought to be. So perhaps we ought to be taxing limiters rather than petrol. Good idea. Yeah, I go for that. Finally, in the Q&A section, we have the question, uh, what do small line array PA speakers have that uh, box-type speakers don't? In other words, what are the advantages other than being physically small? I guess this has come about because of little systems like the HK Elements, which have turned up, and the Fon Linear systems, where you have a sub and, and a very narrow column that looks a little bit like a cricket bat, and people think this can't possibly fill a room, but of course they do. But uh, you can probably explain this better than I can, Hugh. The technical advantage of a line array uh, in terms of its directivity. A line array is basically a whole load of small loudspeakers arranged in a line, one above the other. And they couple in a particular way that effectively produces a cylindrical wavefront. If you imagine a vertical cylinder, you have this cylindrical wavefront that expands out from the speakers. And that has the interesting property that if you double the distance from the speaker, the volume only drops by 3 dB, whereas with a conventional point source speaker, it would drop by 6. So what it means is that you don't deafen people in the audience at the front, but the people at the back can still hear at a decent level. So you get a much more even spread of sound through the room, and that's quite a useful thing, obviously. So the significance of this um, cylindrical wavefront rather than the usual spherical one is that you've got quite a wide dispersion in the horizontal plane, but you're not spraying a lot of sound onto the ceiling or onto the floor. Absolutely, yeah, which is, is very useful. Now, 
the frequency range that that works over is dependent on the size of the line array, the height and the length of the line array. So if you go to uh, you know a big outdoor gig or something where they've got these huge speakers hanging from trusses, then that retains its cylindrical wave front down to relatively low frequency. A lot of the smaller systems, like the, the Fon and the HK stuff you're talking about, they don't work quite so low down because the line array itself is relatively small, but it's still a useful advantage in those kind of critical vocal frequencies. That's true. In fact, most of them use a separate sub, so the sub is going to obey the normal rules of sound dispersion while the mids and the highs uh, have this magical property of managing to penetrate further towards the back of the hall but of course in a typical room those are the ones that get lost. Yeah that's right and, and you know the important thing is that kind of clarity of diction and, and information in those mid-range frequencies. Bass will tend to move around omnidirectionally anyway and it will bounce off all the walls in the room so it, it tends to spread fairly evenly throughout the room whatever you do. So uh, I think it's pretty much the future I'm using that kind of system with my own band and I just find it sounds really really sweet. And I suppose one of the advantages of small drivers is that you don't end up with the crossover frequency right in the middle of the speech range, where sometimes it can cause quite a lot of damage. Yeah, that's very true. And there's also the practical aspect that these things are actually quite compact and easy to carry. You can get them in small cars quite easily, you can carry them around fairly easily, and some of them pack up in a really neat, convenient way. That's certainly true. The system I use has got a single 12-inch sub and a couple of sort of almost one metre long speakers. I can carry both of the line arrays in one hand and the sub in the other and walk straight into a gig with which there are not many one and a half kilowatt PAs you can do that with. And most of them put all the amplifiers in the sub as well, don't they? So you haven't even got to carry separate amplifiers around or anything. It's a very integrated kind of system. Yeah, and especially with Class D amplifiers now, they weigh almost nothing. The, the active and passive versions weigh almost the same. Mm. That's all we've got time for this month. So again, it's time to put Hugh back in his flight case. Thank you very much. And it's time for me to uh, unwind, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye.